Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. This is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds with Carly Malcolm, NC, lead fellow from the North Carolina Institute of Government. Uh, this is the Good Grief Podcast where we uh, unapologetically talk about issues of death and dying. Today, uh, we're talking with local author and triad native Darren Shell. Darren has recently published a new book named 317, A Suicide Loss Survivor Story. Darren is a graduate of Southwest Guilford High School um, in Guilford County and also uh, Western Carolina University. As a suicide loss survivor, losing his father in 2006 and his best friend, in 2015, uh, Darren has a unique perspective as it relates to these kinds of issues. He's an integrated facilities designer for Cone Health and part of a development team for the peer-to-peer suicide prevention app, We Care. Uh, welcome, Darren. Uh, glad to have you with us. We're, we're talking in September, um, Suicide Awareness Month. Um, you want to start off by talking a little about that? Yeah, no, th- thanks for having me uh, this month, especially, I guess. Uh, of course, September will be a year of when I released the book last year. Uh, and it'll also be the 15th anniversary of my father's suicide. So doing this this month really makes a uh, a big deal out of all of this. So I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, we really, Carly and I really appreciate you being with us. So why did, why did you call the book 317? Uh, three seventeen was the time in the morning that God woke me up and said, Hey, I want you to write a book. Um, and initially it was like, you want me to what? And <laughs> I, I just kind of ignored it. But for some reason I wrote down, it was, it was three seventeen in the morning. And as I was looking for a title for the book, I was going back and forth between 10 or 12 different issue, you know, things that it could be. And then I realized, well, my buddy's birthday was March 17th. Uh, yeah. And then there was something else that was a 317. And then finally I was looking for, yeah, at that point I'd figured out there's some religious element to this and there should be a Bible verse. that's going to point me in some direction. Uh, and so I just started looking around and I don't know where I'd look. And I went to Ezekiel and there Ezekiel 317 fit perfectly. And I'm like, okay, that's it. We're going to go with 317. (laughs) Yeah. That's quite a few signs. Yeah. Now, in the preface of your book, you lay out your approach and you talk about these three main points, saying that the book is from your own individual experiences, um, talking about your family being an only child, but with a big family. Um, you talk about, you know, that, that you don't necessarily understand what everyone's going through, that it's individual. So could you talk about why that approach was important to you? Yeah, yeah I think that's one of the big, the worst things is 
when, when it happens to you, there's, there's always somebody who wants to say, oh, I know how it is. And even if they do, they don't. Even if you think you do, you don't. Because it's, it's just every person's experience is, is different because every reason why somebody commits suicide is different. Um, so I always wanted to get that across to everybody of this is just a story of how it happened to me. And there's probably some similarities, but I can't tell you what you're going to go through. Mm. And one of the things I, and I, I've told you this, I, I really appreciated your voice in the book and in the, the language which you spoke in many ways was just very conversational. And, um, and one of the pieces that, that I identified with is it in terms of how you use the term family, that it was, um, you had, a, you know, you have a big family, Darren. <laughs> I do. You know, and, 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 and I appreciated that. Um, and I know you, you know, you started talking about, um, you know, the suicide of your childhood friend, um, Kenny and who you called as your brother, Kenny. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about him and, uh, in terms of who he was and what he meant to you? Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, Kenny is probably the closest thing to a brother I ever had. Um, we had actually known each other since we were three years old. He was my first friend, uh, first day of school. I walked in and, you know, kids running around a thousand miles an hour. He just stops dead in his tracks and says, Hey, I'm Kenny. You want to be my friend? And we were friends for 40 years after that. Um, and, you know, like I say, I spend as much time at his house as he did mine. Um, our parents used to joke around about, you know, should, should both of them get to claim both of us because one was supporting a kid as much as the other. Um, and then like you said, I say, I have a big family because it wasn't just he and I, there was, there were six or seven of us that ran in and out of one house after another, after another. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm an only child with eight or nine brothers and <laughs> seven or eight sisters and, you know, 12 or 15 grand sets of grandparents. So yeah, to be only child, it's a pretty big family. Yeah. That's <laughs> Could you share with us what happened when you learned that Kenny had died by suicide? Uh, yeah, let's think that was weird. Um, yeah, my buddy Keith called me and. He, he sent me a message. He said, Hey, you know, call me when you get a chance, which is not normal for him. So I said, well, what, what would he want? And I started thinking, well, okay, it must be his parents because his parents still live here and he lives out West. So I left and called him and he said, you know, Kenny, Kenny committed suicide. And it was just like present pause. Time stopped. I sat in the front seat. I went in the back seat. And I could sit and watch everything happen as I just fell apart. So it was strange to experience it and see it, knowing that I couldn't really see it at the same time. But, uh, yeah, I guess until you experience that, you can't really ever understand what somebody's talking about. But it, it really is that time just stops and, yeah, you, you kind of see what happens as much as you're feeling it. Mm. And there was, um, moments when you, um, reconnected with some of your friends, I think, uh, Deborah, um, and when you were visiting people, yeah, uh, there was interaction, you know, like, you know, when you're, 
you're, you're a person. When I was reading the book, it's kind of like you had the, the initial experience of building the friendship with Kenny, um, and all that that meant to you with you, with you and your extended family. Then there was the idea that, that both you and your extended family, you know, in many ways went on with your lives and you, you went out and were in your own worlds and had your own families and all that. And then, um, there's a part where you come back together and there's some visitation going on. Can you yeah. talk about that? Well, yeah, as, as soon as I heard Kenny had passed and I kind of got past my initial shock and my first thought was I had to get to his mom, Yeah, and it was mom would need the rest of us. Yeah, his, his sister would need the rest of us. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm frantically trying to get a hold of somebody trying to, you know, and I knew his home phone number by heart, you know, from being a kid. And of course his parents had moved, <laughs> so that didn't do me any good. And so, yeah, I don't even remember how I got his sister's number. Uh, but I finally got a hold of his sister and, you know, it was kind of at that point I realized I was now the only one of the group that had experience with this and it, I, it was my purpose to help walk his family through what I had already gone through to help kind of cushion the blow because if you don't have somebody that's actually gone through it, I mean, you're walking through totally uncharted water all by yourself. And to allow you a, a little bit of stability in walking into that situation, knowing that you've gone through it before. And I know you mentioned meeting, meeting and talking with, uh, Kenny's wife and, uh, um, and, there, and as an aside, I think there was a, a little s mention of the dog <laughs> yeah. that, that came up in your, you know. Yeah, he had always had Dalmatians. Um, I think the, the set he had when he passed, that was probably number four and five, I think. Um, and I had I'd never met these two. Uh, but the, the one, he just not... I wouldn't say he's not friendly, but he just doesn't like new people. Mm -hmm. Um, and normally he's all, you know, kind of jumpy, very protective of Kenny's wife. And uh, I sat, I sat down and the dog just came over and sat down and laid his head right in my lap and just looked up at me like, are you as confused as I am? And I'm like, yes, I am. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes, this. And, uh, so the dog and I kind of bonded and I guess the, at that point, the rest of the family's like, okay, you know, the dog likes him. He can't be all bad. Yeah. That's a, actually, you know, um, and, and in these situations, so many of us come into them and there's a, there's, there's also, there's a, the, um, the almost shock of the event then there is the the idea of reaching out because you immediately out of compassion and, and and a relationship want to connect with people that you know and love and um and i think and and going through these experiences i know in reading the book there was kind of this undercurrent uh that came through um you know specifically at times and 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 underneath sometimes of your faith tradition and how and how you are navigating these situations always with an eye toward deepening and connecting your humanity and also what that means in terms of faith. And, and so one of the, one of the things I'll ask you about is there's this funny story in the book when, whenever one of these things started coming through where, where your faith came into play a little bit about understanding you and your history was this idea of trying to finagle a fire truck. 
<laughs> um, it, it was, I guess, uh, around the time that you were moving from Virginia to North Carolina and meeting Kenny. Um, and I, th- I, I think there was about Pastor Wallace. Was it Pastor Wallace? Yeah, the baby Pastor Wallace. In the fire truck. I yeah. thought that was a great story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, it's my mom's favorite story to tell. Um, and I guess in writing the book, um, writing the book helped me discover that there's just a series of events that happened through my whole life that kind of got me prepared to write the book. Yeah, that, that maybe the book was my end purpose, but all these other things had to happen to me before then. Um, and so, you know, it's that early religious influence. You know, as a kid, you go to church because mom and dad are dragging you there. I went because I loved our pastor and he loved me. He was, you know, there's another grandparent that wasn't really mine. Uh, but yeah, he was my first experience really as, you know, as a kid, it's Christmas, it's Jesus's birthday. I'm with mom at Kmart and I'm like, you know, we have to get baby Jesus a present. (laughs) And my mom's like, uh, where are you going with this? How do I get out of this? <laughs> oh, well, wait a minute. We wouldn't even know what to get him. Well, of course I'm, yeah, I'm three. He's a baby. We should be close to the same age. What did I want? I wanted a fire truck. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, it, some kids will be throwing a fit about what they want in the store. And I was throwing a fit about, no, we needed to buy the baby Jesus, a fire truck. And we need to do it right then. Uh, and I wouldn't hear any different on it. And so she, I had to. Well, after Sunday after church, go sit and talk to Pastor Wallace and discuss with him my idea. And, uh, you know, as he, he kind of was slowly building up to it and I couldn't wait. And I just had to blurt the whole thing out. I'm like, yeah, it's baby Jesus' birthday. I want to buy him a fire truck. And mom said, I can't. Uh, and so then he had to kind of convince me that maybe just, you know, throwing $5 in would be a better deal than, <laughs> than trying to get go get a fire truck. But I did get the fire truck for Christmas for myself, so that, yeah. that was kind of cool. So there was some payoff. There was some payoff. I there still did payoff. get the fire truck I wanted. Yeah, but I, I just thought that interaction that you were having at a young age around, you know, in the, through child's eyes, I guess, um, you know, thinking about your, well, thinking about a little, another little baby named Jesus and and the idea of throughout the book, and including in, in terms of, you know, scriptural references that you use and, and also just thinking through um, issues of suicide, how you are led into that space with, um, and it comes through in the book with me, a deep level of integrity and a sense of faith, um, a quality of faith that I appreciate. Thanks. And one of the things that we talk about pretty frequently on this podcast is how difficult it can be to talk about death. It makes us feel kind of uncomfortable. And I think, you know, particularly with suicide, that's even more so the case. Um, And I've got the quote here. When you emailed your friends to let them know what had happened, you said, Kenny had lost his battle with depression and we lost him. And that got you some pushback from one of your friends. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, a couple of my friends, actually. I mean, one of my friends, he immediately sent me an email and he goes, you know, I'm just going to assume Kenny committed suicide because I've never really known anybody to die of depression. And I said, well, you know, yeah, you're right. And he's like, look, we're we're not 12 years old anymore. We're adults. You need to, to tell us this. He goes, we're not stupid. Uh, and at the same time, a girl from high school, uh, yeah, who I always thought was smarter than me. 
uh, and still proves to be. Uh, she's a, a doctor now, and she called me right away, and she said, you know, you need to stop it. You can't do this. If you don't talk about it, it just makes it worse. Um, and I knew she was right because I had gone through that with my father for, you know, years. It was like, you know, my dad passed, he died, he was sick, you know, anything but saying that he had died by suicide. Uh, and so I knew, I knew she was right. And then, you know, so finally that was, that was really the point where I think I permanently made the change to, you know, okay, yes, my dad died by suicide. My best friend died by suicide. Uh, you know, and then now working at the hospital, you know, you get more into the, the language of it and, you know, it's not a committed suicide or a successful attempt or, you know, there's nothing successful about it. If anything, uh, you know, it's a failure. So, you know, learning that language has, has helped talk about it more and make it a little easier. Mm -hmm. And one of those terms is suicide loss survivor. Um, and there's some stigma associated with suicide loss. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, people think of it as, okay, yes. You know, somebody you knew died by suicide. My grandma died. Yeah. It, it's not the same. It's, you knew your grandma was going to die. You might not have known right then, but you didn't have zero warning on it happening. Um, Probably, you know, the, the closest things are, you know, people that have somebody die in a car accident or something like that. I, I don't know. I've never had that happen, so it's hard to relate to. But just something about losing someone to a suicide is just so different than any other death I've experienced in my life. Um, you kind of have to give it its own definition. Yeah, you know, and, and suicide loss survivors, that it just kind of is a little different way to explain getting through a death as opposed to just somebody dying. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, in, and, and in dealing with it, there's a lot of, in a lot of cases, there is, are these clouds of judgment that, that sometimes come into play about, you know, how should we morally view it? Um, or should we, and if we should, what should we do? And then we stumble around the words. Mm -hmm. We don't know what to say. And then we, you know, a lot of times we say things we, you know, don't necessarily know the impact we're having. Um, and, and at times it creates, um, uh, an unfortunate dance. Yeah. Cause sometimes yeah. you do, you say the wrong thing. Um, and then other times not saying anything is the wrong thing. Yeah. So, so many times, I mean, I remember even with people I knew, it's like, let's talk about anything, but. Um, you, you almost feel like people were trying not to talk to you. Uh, and then you look back in yourself and you know, they're not trying, they're trying not to talk to you because they have no idea what to say because they don't know what's going to cause you to fall apart because you don't know what's going to cause you to fall apart. Uh, you know, and nothing's worse than 35 year old man sitting at his desk in the middle of the office crying for no reason. So everybody's trying to avoid that. Um. But then, you know, there are times where you just need a friend. Yeah, it can be that simple. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, and speaking of the friendship that you had, you had, um, growing up, I, in reading it, it was the idea that is like 15 year olds. I mean, I remember when I was 15 years old and I remember my friends and, 
and it, and I was kind of reflecting on all that when we would come up with these. And sometimes I just say dumb agreement. You know, just we don't know what we're doing. We're, you know, twenty years from now we're gonna get together or something. But but it was this idea of of this kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna speak at each at, we're gonna speak at each other's funerals. If something happens to us, we're gonna take care of our families. Um, and then you find yourself in them moments years later. And I think at one point there's a conversation you have with a pastor Scott uh, about God won't give you more than you can handle. And, and, and there were points in here where you were clearly processing all this in multiple ways and multiple layers, emotionally, spiritually, practically. Um, and there's, there's, you, you reach out to a friend named Brian. And can you talk about those two things, I guess, related to Pastor Scott? And- yeah. So like you said, you know, Kenny and I had made a dumb agreement as two stupid teenagers do, you know, that we had been friends so long. We just assumed that, you know, we'll be 85 years old sitting around talking to each other about how long we've been friends. And one of us, I don't even remember who started it, made the joke that, well, you know, whoever dies first has to talk to the other one's funeral. And we agreed to it because... You know, we were 15. We weren't going to die anytime soon. It's 70 years away. Uh, and then it turns out it, it was, you know, it was less than 30 years away. Uh, so that was, that was hard, you know, realize, okay, now I've actually got to speak at his funeral. And so sitting there right before the funeral, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking and I've, you know, regular life going on up and amongst that as well. You sit there and you think, okay. We've been told our lives, God won't give you more than he can handle. And I'm sitting there literally thinking, you got a whole lot more faith in me than I do. Let me tell you, Mm. because I'm about to lose it today. Um, And then just seconds later, the the pastor is speaking and he says, you know, well, of course, God will give us more than he can handle. That's why he gave us family and friends. And it's like, so now suddenly I have permission for this to be too much. Mm Mm-hmm. And for some reason, that was the biggest relief, yeah, uh, of anything that day. Yeah, and the the and I think in there was you kind of allude to the idea of you know that that you both may have not theologically agreed on everything, but it was clear there was a lot of love there. Yeah, talking talking with Brian. That's awesome. I mean, that's that's you know, hey, talk to me about everything in life, and we don't agree. And when you bring politics and religion in it, you know, we go all off the rails. Yeah. But the idea of how you say in that, that, that in that situation underneath, there was a lot of love there. Yeah. Brian is, that was a powerful statement. Uh, Brian's, I guess I've had a lot of friends who are pastors. Yeah. And Brian is definitely the first pastor that's been my friend, mm. if that makes any sense at all. Uh, yeah, he, he was a youth pastor at our church, but he and I, we were in Marvel movie buddies. Uh, cause neither one of our wives liked him. So he and I would always go check out the newest Marvel movie and stuff. And so, um, he and I were really, really close. Our kids were in scouts together, all that. And, you know, when, when Kenny committed suicide, I knew there was nobody else to talk to. Yeah. Brian was going to be the only person that was going to make it better for me. Um, and, and we were talking and, you know, like you say, you get into that, you kind of try to skirt around the, you know, is it a, a total do not pass go, do not collect $200 kind of thing for suicide and stuff. And we weren't necessarily on the same side of the coin. And I could tell, cause I said something to Brian kind of just raised that one eyebrow like he does. And, but he never said anything. Yeah. He's like, 
okay, I don't necessarily agree with you, but now it's just really not the time to bring it up. You're in the midst of dumping your soul out to me. Let's continue on with that. And, you know, it was just, again, you know, it's, it's the love of a brother to do something like that at that time. Absolutely. There's a point in the book where you talk about the Kenny, Paul, and Darren dynamic. Can you, you talk about the dynamics of, of those friendships? Yeah, that's three things you don't want to have in the same place much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's an interesting way of saying it. Yeah, I, I, I went to school with <laughs> Kenny. I understand. Since, I went to school with Kenny since I was three. Um, about first grade, I left, uh, went to a different school, and about sixth grade, I came back. So there was about five years in there where... I guess Paul came in third grade. So they had had three or four years. They were close friends. And he and he and Paul were as close to friends as Kenny and I were. Um, so when I came back, you know, it was like, as it was our whole life, whenever we found each other again, it was like, we never, there was never an empty time between seeing each other. So initially Paul wasn't a real big fan of me. Uh, just, we had to get used to who was whose friend. And then we realized, okay, we're all friends. Um, and so, you know, even today, you know, Paul and I, we, we just had lunch the other day. Um, you know, so it, it, we're always still close, even if we don't see each other. Uh, you know, we're, we're almost 50 now and I don't see him for two or three months of time. And when I do see him, we act like we're 12 years old. Um, yeah. And that never changes. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that is a very identifiable kind of relationship you yeah know, we all have these people that we can we see either regularly but we don't see for years and can settle back into into a relationship that is sometimes both brutally honest and trusted <laughs> at the same time um the uh, you know we we talked about kenny and and i'm going to transition into um what you described in the book is the worst day of your life uh, the death of your dad. Tell us what happened. Uh, I was at work, uh, and I was just sitting there. We just come back from lunch. It was a little after one, and I'm sitting there, and I just had this ice cold tingle go through my entire body. Uh, and I knew something bad had happened. I just believe you said disruption in the force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a buddy of mine was sitting behind me, and he's like. I guess I shook it off or whatever. And he was like, what happened there? And I'm like, I don't know, but something bad has happened. And, and like you said, Jeff, the only thing I can ever liken it to is, you know, I, I felt the disruption in the force kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I knew the moment it happened and it, it was two hours before they got everything straightened out. The police got the mom's house and who to contact. And when they called work, you know, the Tom from HR just came up and he was just standing at my desk and, you, you know, you like, you know, somebody's watching you and you look up and there's Tom and you just look at his face and you know, okay, I, I know what's wrong. Uh, so I just, you know, I, I shut down my computer and I could get in the truck and go to mom's house. And, uh, they're like, well, how'd you know? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, I knew. Uh, and yeah, it was, I guess that's the answer to your question. Yeah. And, you know, and. When I was reading through your description of it, I want to talk a little bit about the scene where, uh, um, I mean, because it was really descriptive of the actual interactions with the police detective of the coroner, coroner, 
the crime scene cleaners. Yeah. Um, and the idea of waiting yeah. at the house that, that afternoon. That, oh, that was something I don't think there's any way to be prepared for. Mm. You know, it's like, okay, so and I guess it's the same. Somebody dies and you have to go through it all, or somebody commits suicide and you have to go through it all. And you don't really uh, think about the things that the family has to deal with in the background. You know, but like you say, I ran to my mom's house. I got there. I'm headed in the door and this, you know, at least my size man just steps right in front of me uh, to stop me. And the first thought is I'm like, he's got about two choices and one of them is get out of my way. And the other is to get out of my way. Uh, <laughs> okay. but, but fortunately, you know, it's just the greatest thing he could have said was, you know, you don't want to go in there. He's like, he's gone there. There are things you cannot unsee. Mm. Um, and he, he stopped me from going in the house. And I, you know, as I look back at it, I'm probably glad of that. Um, but you know, they were waiting on the corner. Of course, you know, it had already been two hours by the time I got there. And then they're still waiting on the corner. And I think I waited probably another hour, but it felt like about two and a half days. And, you know, I, I'm sitting across the street in the neighbor's patio furniture where I used to kind of sit as a kid when I didn't know what to do. Um, feeling like a kid again, actually, but, and I'm kind of accusing the corner of still playing golf. Yeah. Cause yeah, I'm like, how right. can it take that long to get to from get Winston-Salem to Kernersville? There's yeah. absolutely no way it could take that long. And of course I had no consideration of he could have been doing anything else. You know, he might've had another meeting. Somebody else could have died. He had to deal with or whatever. No, it was just, he was taking too long to get to where I was at. Yeah. So when he finally came and then they left the, you know, the detective has to tell me all the things they have to tell you that they didn't want to tell you. And he's like, you know, well, so here's a list of people who, you know, will clean these things up and we can't recommend anybody, but I'd start at the top of the list and work down from there if you had to. Well, at that point it was just like, well, wait a minute, stop this isn't my problem to deal with. Isn't this what y'all do? Mm. Yeah. I, I just had no concept of, I, you know, I guess I had this CSI image of, you know, there should be three people checking for gunshot residue and getting the angles and, and all this stuff. And then they were supposed to clean that up and leave. Mm. Uh, it turns out, no, no, <laughs> it not exactly. Didn't turn anyway. Yeah. You know, it's just right? like, yeah. you know, the police show up and say, yes, there it is. Uh, well, we'll have to call the coroner to confirm he's dead. And I'm like, really? Mm. Do, we, do we need a medical degree for this? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, he came and left. And now here I am stuck with, well, now, how are you going to clean this up? Mm -hmm. So mom leaves me the checkbook and, and the guy shows up and he goes, and he says, let me go in and I'll give you a quote. And he comes back out. And, and I guess somehow mentally, I kind of, being an engineer or whatever, I guess I kind of worked out in the math in my head of what I thought it ought to be. Yeah. I wasn't even close. Wasn't even close. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah. so for a split second there, your mind's like, there is no way in hell I am paying somebody that much money for this. Mm. Yeah. And then your mind goes, well, there's no way in the hell you're going to do it either. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it, yeah. And so, you know, as, as I, you're, you know, I was asking about the scene and all this kind of stuff, you know, and you can tell in the language that you're using as you're writing. At this moment in this situation, you're on an emotional roller coaster. 
and you're about to go off the rails, <laughs> you know, um, and, and a lot of it is, uh, and, and on the podcast, we talk a lot about planning for death. Um, just, you know, a lot of times you can't plan right. for death, but the idea is, is that when death happens, what your expectations are, what are the realities that begin happening? And, and again, we, we talk about how there are these emotional, spiritual, the, the idea of mourning and what that does to you. And then there's also, you know, what you were getting at. Uh, is, you know, you want a casket? <laughs> Why are you cremating? You know, and and I think you're dealing with the emotional roller coaster of the moment that you're in, and and to be quite frankly, at some point, it you're just mad. Well, you know, and mad. but I, I you know, or I guess that may be a calm way of saying it, but you're all over the place. Oh, well, you know, yeah, it's like they say, you know, there's there's five stages of grief, and, and yeah, you have to go through them all. You can't skip one. Uh, I got anger over quickly, uh, you know, like the, the cleaner left and I stood in an empty house and just cut loose mm. on my father. I cussed him up one side and down the other. I dared him to show himself. Yeah. It's like, well, those are like, I don't even believe ghosts, but I dare you to come out here and start with me. Yeah. Uh, That's just raw, just completely illogical anger. Um, and then it just kind of passed. Yeah. You know, I, I was just as mad as I could be. I blew off 10,000 pounds of steam. And then I realized, well, that was kind of mean. So I apologized to the house cause felt like, you know, I might've hurt her feelings. For some mm. reason that at that point, the house was a hurt. Uh, so I apologized to the house and packed up my stuff and left. Mm. Uh, but you're right. It, it just kept coming back, you know, cause then you, you do, you go to the funeral home and okay, dad never wanted a, a big funeral. So we're going to do a cremation. Then you find out what that was going to cost. Well, again, not what I expected, <laughs> you know, and they're like, do you want to pick a casket? Why would I do that? If we're going to do a cremation, that doesn't make sense. You know? Yeah. And I think at some point you thought about not having a funeral. I, I thought about having not, not having a funeral because dad never wanted one. And then mm -hmm. truthfully, we kind of had a funeral out of spite. Uh, I was so mad at him. I was going to have a funeral then, whether he wanted one or not. <laughs> or not. Um, yeah, there was a lot of anger there. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's all those things that you just don't think about it. You never really plan for, uh, you know, and just. I don't know if it's really just that much more expensive than I ever thought because I never had any experience with it before, or if it's just that combined with what had happened, you're just like, how can you charge somebody this much for what this is? Mm. Yeah. I mean, and it's so, I mean, for, I, I think I mentioned this to you. I lost, uh, my uncle, uh, to suicide, uh, uh, years ago and, the way you write about this wide array of feelings that you're experiencing and going through, I think is really, um, I mean, I identify, I was reading through, I'm like, yeah, I remember that. And I remember, um, you know, after it happened in our situation, the silence of that afternoon after it happened and, and when people were leaving and the shock and then the, like I was saying, the emotional roller coaster you go through. And um and so the book is not only 
an exploration of that and articulation of it, you are involved in a number of other things that, uh, as a result of these experiences in the book, you know, that have connected you with. Particularly, um, there's this connection to veterans and, you know, your relationship with Sergeant Q. So could you talk about what that connection is and how you all met? Yeah, uh, when I came to work at Cone, uh, one, one day I was in a meeting at the Behavioral Health Hospital. Um, and I don't know, it just felt like the right place, right time. It had been about 12 years since dad had passed. And I'm like, okay, it, I was really starting to feel it was time for me to do something for somebody else. Uh, and so I started talking to one of the doctors there and, you know, really, what could I do and this and that. And so she had some ideas and we had some, and we were talking about possibly doing a walk when this new be, uh, behavioral health urgent care opens up here in Guilford County. And, uh, so I ran off to some ideas and I called some people I knew, uh, through like the mission 22 and till Valhalla kind of thing, because that was some stuff Kenny had supported before, uh, he had died. Um, so when I got a hold of the guys from till Valhalla, they're like, you know, they were just way too busy to get up there. Their business was booming and he was growing faster than he had space for and just didn't know if it was going to work out. Uh, but a couple months later, he sent me a video of, of Sergeant Q, uh, who was a Marine that had, uh, battled PTSD, actually, you know, almost committed suicide himself and has started to develop an app for peer to peer suicide prevention in the veteran community while well, working at the hospital. Now it just, to me, it quickly, you know, kind of hit me like, Hey, this is a good idea. This is how we reach out into the community, not just veterans or whatever, but this is something that would apply to just everyday person. Um, so I called him and he came out here and we went to our behavioral health group and our cone ventures group and everybody really thought it was a good idea. And so we started working on how we would roll this out into the community. Uh, and in the midst of working on that, um, COVID hit. Mm. So COVID-19 hit, he was supposed to come out the next week. Of course he was in King County, Washington state, uh, which was like the second worst place to be. So, uh, we said, you stay there, we'll stay here. Uh, and so we started doing a lot of stuff over the internet and then that stuff and starting to plan for, you know, what we would do. Oddly enough, at the same time, one of our doctors, uh, happened to know a doctor. he had went to school with her who made the news because she, she was an ER doctor. She had gotten COVID. She had gotten over it went back to work and was just so stressed. She ended up committing suicide. And so I've read the comments in his post, seeing other doctors saying, yeah, this is what we're fighting. We don't have anywhere to go, you know, you know, who helps the helper kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, I called Aaron the next morning and I'm like, we're six months away from a disaster. We've got to do something, uh, you know, not knowing what was going to happen here because it hadn't really started to hit here. All we could see what was going on was in New York and look into that, like it was going to be the worst thing we could imagine. And so we were trying to prepare for that as a hospital. So I started trying to prepare for that for our staff, uh, knowing you just 
people can't take that much at once. And it's not when it happens because you always get through it. It's once it's over, it starts to crumble. And of course they were saying, we just need to be home two weeks and it'll come off and all that. So I knew we had a very short period of time. Uh, and so Aaron and I convinced a convention group to let's reface what we have. Let's work this thing out and get it to our staff. And we launched what we, what we're calling, we care now, um, which has still been in the test phase for a while, but it has been positive enough that we know we've had at least three people in the app, um, reach out to the suicide hotline. Um, so from our world, we know we've saved three people's lives with the app, which is well worth whatever we put into it. Mm. Um, and it has since rolled into a clinical trial, which they're now actually working on the community app that we had originally planned. That's great. Um, and I think you, you mentioned about the like veteran culture, I guess, search at Q or Aaron, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the, the idea of the, the app really being intuitive to active military and veteran culture yeah. about, about leaving no one behind and of how, you know, you know, you've got companies of people that are together and the, the ability to be able to check in yeah, and follow up. And he, he made such a, a stupid, simple point. Uh, you know, it, the whole strength of our military relies on the squad mentality. Yeah. yeah the, the no man left behind your five guys. And the only people you have to rely on to protect you and save your life are the other four. Uh, you know, so as he designed the app, it's designed around that mentality. You try to keep groups of four or five people. Yeah. And they're people, you know, and trust, and it's a three second push of a button and the, the signal goes out to your group and then throws you into grounding techniques to mentally kind of restore that cognitive thought that you need. Uh, cause when you lose cognitive thought, that's when we make bad decisions. Uh, cause you lose the connection to the, the frontal cortex. So it starts asking you questions, you know, just well, what are three things you see? What are two things you smell? And it's really just to slow your brain down, to make you try to get an answer and wait out your team coming. And, you know, the military has proven you're more apt to, to hold on because you know, somebody's coming. Uh, and that's just the premise behind the app. And when we tried to roll that into healthcare, it, it works the same way. And it made the same sense because these especially in the, the ER departments and stuff, these people rely on each other every day, um, to be there for one another. You know, you, you get to the point where this come, you know, this type of thing comes in, everybody knows what to do. I need a scalpel. If I reach out my right hand, there's just instinctively somebody there handing me the scalpel. Uh, and it's exactly the way military works. Right. And so it, it was a very convenient way to, to roll it over into, to the healthcare app. And then there's also the the out of the darkness walk. Can you talk about what that is and what that's like? Uh, yeah, it's sponsored by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, uh, or AFSP, as a lot of people call it. Um, they're little walks in in you know every little town or major city all around the the United States, uh, and it's just a group of people who've been touched by suicide who get together to kind of recognize their everyone they've lost and be around people who have experienced the same thing. It's kind of like me being with Kenny, Kenny's family on a grander scale. Um, the big thing I really liked about it was, um, 
everybody, when you first get there, you pick these colors of beads and the colors represent different things. You know, there's a color for a spouse, a color for losing a, a family member, a, co- a color for losing a child. Um, and a- after they do the walk, then you, everybody's in a big group and they'll say, you know, here's, here's this person. And the, you know, they're honoring all, everyone who lost a child and, and they're holding up a color of bead. And then every other person in that group that's lost a child is holding up that, that same color. And now if you're, if you're new to that, if that's your first walk, you realize you're not the only person that's lost a child. I mean, you knew that, but then you kind of realize here you are in your little town in, you know, a group of eight or 900 people, there's 50 other people who've gone through what you've gone through and, and you never knew that, you know, and sometimes you might see somebody you knew that you never knew went through it. Uh, and it's just really Again, it's just kind of refreshing. It kind of lets you realize it's okay that it's okay to not be okay with what happened. And there are other people there that can help you through it. Right. Yeah. And that kind of gives you the sense of community and of support that's so important. Right. Yeah. Now, where can people find and buy your book? Uh, the book's on Amazon. It's probably the easiest place to get it. Uh, I do have a website, which is uh, 317thebook.com. Uh, it's also on sale for there. I prefer you buy it from there because I'm I make a few cents more from there than I do Amazon. <laughs> but as long as you buy it, that's all I mind. Uh, yeah. Hey, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Darren. Um, Three seventeen, the suicide loss survivor story. Talking with you in September, uh, the first anniversary of the release of the book. Um. Thank you for uh, running through um, different pieces of your experience through the book and some of the community initiatives that you were involved in. Uh, you are a local author, and we really appreciate you not only being local, being a triad native, and um, your courage and your commitment in stepping out related to um, to the story. So, Darren, uh, on behalf of Carly and myself, thank you for being with us today. Uh, appreciate you. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to, you know, again, get, get out the word about, you know, suicide and prevention and mental health recovery, you know, both for the sick and the, the affected. All right. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for being a part of the Good Grief Podcast. Hey, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at guilford underscore ROD. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.